Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Ryan Shearman, co-founder and CEO of Ether. Ether is a company that transforms harmful atmospheric carbon into diamonds. Seriously, it turns an invisible gas into this beautiful gem. And in the episode, Ryan and I will discuss how exactly he came to start a startup that turns gas into physical product, his story from product development at David Yerman and running his own motorcycle accessories company to founding a company like Ether, how this transformation technology works, the criteria Ryan thinks through to evaluate potential startup opportunities and how exactly this translates to Ether. And lastly, the different products that a company like Ether can bring to life in the future. Folks, I learned so much in this conversation and I'm so excited for y'all to listen. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this interview with Ryan Shearman, co-founder and CEO of Ether. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right, let's start with the basics. What is Ether? So it, it's, this is really a good question and a timely one because this is something that I've been discussing with quite a few people as of late. Essentially, we don't view ourselves as anything more complicated than a carbon tech company. And really, what does that mean? If the name is any indication, what we like to engage in is you know, what I would consider a modern form of alchemy, you know, manipulating carbon atoms, turning one form of carbon into another. Okay, that sounds like super mad scientist-y. I, I want to unpack how this manifests in real life. So right now, you position the company as ether transforms harmful atmospheric carbon into diamonds, <laughs> which sounds crazy. Um, so for the listeners, I'd love to better understand two things. One, why are diamonds the place or the starting point for how to use harmful carbon and then repurpose it? And then two, where was the eureka moment here? How does one say, what? I want to take this invisible gas in the air and turn it into this beautiful jewelry? So it's a good question. And you know, I think the aha moment is the, the same reason why diamonds are the starting point. Because ultimately, you know, the goal for the business is to go beyond diamonds. But uh, with that said, I'll give you a little bit of context as to how that all came to be. I got my start in tech in the very tail end of 2013. But before that, I was actually working in the world of fine jewelry. So going back a decade now, I was one of the early team members uh, for David Yerman's new men's line. So I, I traditionally uh, have an education in engineering. I was working in metallurgy and product development before finding myself in the jewelry industry. And it was the perfect blend of my own personal interest in fashion with a lot of you know what I'd learned in school and a lot of what I'd been doing just from a material science perspective in my career. And I learned a lot about the industry over the first called three years before I ended up leaving to start a, a D2C brand in the motorcycle space. Totally unrelated. That said, later in life, 2017, I'd, I'd say, I started paying attention to you know, what was happening in climate. I'd been hearing about climate change and global warming since I was, you know, nine or 10 years old, as far as I can remember, but it was really never something I'd done anything about. In my personal life, I like to ride motorcycles, old motorcycles, which might not be the most efficient vehicles on the planet. This was not something that I really paid a lot of attention to in my day to day. And, and that changed in 2017. And probably around the time that we had some hurricanes hit Florida and Puerto Rico and Texas, I organized a remote motorcycle ride, a charity ride to raise funds for disaster relief. And there was something really profound about that experience, just in terms of being able to do something that I loved and have that go to a good cause. And I fell in love with the notion that you can drive positive change by doing what you like to do, just pointing your efforts kind of towards a, a specific compass heading. And I realized uh, someone gifted me a book called Drawdown, phenomenal book talks about what we can and need to do to decarbonize our atmosphere and you know how we're going to combat climate change in a really meaningful way. And 
it occurred to me, well, hey, carbon, we are carbon-based life forms. We live in a carbon-based world. There's this issue of carbon acting as a, a blanket on our planet. This is what's causing climate change. This is raising global temperatures. But carbon isn't inherently bad. After all, diamonds are crystalline carbon, and they're pretty good. So is there an opportunity if we could take that, that one form and put it into another? Is there a financial opportunity? Is there a set of unit economics that could really be favorable? And if so, what would that empower us to do? So ultimately, the type of guy who never threw out any of my college textbooks, I started digging through some of the old chemistry books and came up with an idea, a concept for how we would take atmospheric CO2 and turn it into pure crystalline carbon. Brought on a, wow. a group of phenomenal people and we started chasing that down with the understanding that if it was possible, it might have really phenomenal unit economics that would enable us to do a lot of really great things. And, and ultimately, the baseline explanation for the business model is there's this flywheel effect. We, we pay to remove carbon from the air. We then productize that carbon, create high value, high margin goods. We sell that, those products and make a lot of money, which then enables us to pull more carbon out and the cycle continues. Wow. All right, Ryan. I, my wheels are turning right now, pun intended. I, I, before we skip over the chapter before Ether, I think it'll be helpful because clearly your product and business savvy comes from what appears to be a history of, of singles, doubles, like really successful hits. I'm looking at your LinkedIn. So Fusar... Fuser, if I'm pronouncing that wrong, you Fuser. operated this <laughs> Fuser. So All Fuser, good. you started and operated this business for five years and then you sold it. And obviously you talked about your love for motorcycling. How, maybe just like quickly for the listeners, what exactly were you selling at Fuser? Sure. When we got started, and this was the impetus for the name, I saw an opportunity to aggregate certain technologies, right? When I'm walking down the street and I can pull out my smartphone, it does so many different things, right? In one, it's a unified user experience, more so than being a unified device, because I think as Apple has been really great at showing, you don't just need one device. I've got my Apple Watch, I've got my AirPod Pros, and I've got my iPhone in my pocket, and they work in this unified manner. And, and really, that was something that I was striving to bring to the world of outdoor sports. So as a pretty passionate motorcyclist, uh, and snowboarder and skydiver. And really, I'm just someone who's always been engaged in these more extreme sports, for lack of a better word. I noticed that I was wearing a GoPro on my helmet. I had a communication device. I had maybe an app to track certain performance metrics. None of it was unified. None of it worked together. And it all came to a head. This was probably 2012, a year before I started the company. I was riding my motorcycle into work while I was working for David Yerman, coming down the West Side Highway, and I got hit by a car. I launched off my bike. I, I basically lawn darted, landed on my head, got a concussion, contusion in my hip. I was pretty banged up. And it took the better part of an hour for police to arrive on scene. And in New York City, there are police everywhere. Under no circumstances yeah. should it make sense to you as a New Yorker you know, as to why it would take 45, 50 minutes for police to arrive on scene. And it turned out the guy who hit me called it in. He stopped, but he didn't know exactly where we were. So he had just given them the wrong location. And this was not long after I'd been in an automobile accident. And don't think I'm just accident prone. <laughs> I was actually, I was hit both times, but I'd been in, a, in an automobile accident and, and we had OnStar in that vehicle. And before I realized what had happened, I was talking to someone you know, through my OnStar system. And when I was doing my post-mortem after this accident, I, I decided I was not going to ride motorcycles anymore. That, that was the end of it. It was my second fairly serious accident in, in two years. And there's no adage. It's not if you're going to get into an accident, if you ride motorcycles, it's when. And uh, so this was my second one. Both were pretty bad, both on the West Side Highway in New York, believe it or not, probably only a quarter mile from each other. And it, it occurred to me, there's nothing like OnStar for motorcycles. And then I started really understanding the particulars around the experience and, and where tech falls short. And my notion was like, let's fuse these different technologies together in a way that made sense. And then that became the, the core for fusion. Um, Fuser being a, a derivative of that. And the AR yeah. actually came from augmented reality because 
our initial kind of sense for how we do this was to make a smart motorcycle helmet. So imagine Tony Stark's Iron Man helmet condensed and you know brought to market at an affordable price point for motorcyclists. You know, something that could show you a, a digital, a transparent digital rear view of what's happening behind you so that you have full 360 degree situational awareness, crash detection, emergency response capabilities, communication capabilities, obviously GPS music got to have all the bells and whistles. And, and we basically went out to build this unified smart helmet product. And uh, we ended up spinning it out so that it was more of a, a, an accessory line, multiple mm-hmm. products that work together. So it was more important that we had a unified experience than a, a single physical hardware product. So that was the baseline for how we went and built Fuser. We you know, grew the company for five and a half years. Our consumer footprint spanned about 130 countries around the world by the time uh, we'd sold the business. Yeah, it was a really wonderful experience. Not my first foray into entrepreneurship, but my first buy the books, venture scale business. I I'd always had a, a, some type of business going back to selling Pokemon cards in middle school, all the way through high school and college. Always had something, but that uh-huh. was my first, first go at it in a professional capacity. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Okay. First of all, I, I, I get the value proposition. I have a couple family members who both A, ride, and B, have, have gone into accidents as well. God forbid, not life-threatening, but I hear you 100%. W- when you exit the company and sell it, is this I'm, – I'm always fascinated in how founders choose to pursue the next big venture. So after this one closes out – do you now have the financial freedom to pursue whatever you want? And then you're like, you know what? I, I want to go after a moonshot like Ether. Or as you're exploring Ether, is there a bunch of de-risking you're doing up front? Are you raising capital from your friends? How, connect the dots from Fuser to Ether. And at what point do you say, you know what? I, I, do, need, I do need to raise capital from people to de-risk what at this point is – uh, a broader hypothesis that still needs proving. Right. The minute you take a dollar from an outside investor is the day that you are promising to get them an ROI. So out of the box, I didn't want to raise capital. Also, uh-huh. I sold too much of, of Fuser, and uh, that was just an internal sensitivity that I had. My two co-founders on the project had never been in a startup, never started a company before. We said, let's fund the business ourselves. We preceded the business ourselves. Uh And that enabled us to get up and running and de-risk things along the way so that when it came time to go out and raise, we could do so in a way that made sense, not only at the time, but for our long-term aspirations, the type of ownership we'd wanted to retain over time. And I think that was the right move. I'm not the type of person that will ever just sit on a beach and sip my ties. If I have that billion dollar (laughs) exit, I boredom doesn't uh, work well with me. And then ultimately, that's how I started Fuser. Not to totally derail the conversation, but it was when I was in the jewelry industry, I was actually recruited away by a competitor. That's why I left David Yerman uh, to launch a men's line for them. And I got embroiled in a bit of a non-compete issue with, uh, with DY and my new employer. David Yerman threatened to sue both of us. And I said, listen, I don't want to drag this out. If you don't want me to work there, make me an offer. And they ended up giving me this you know, really generous severance package, six months, like full pay and benefits, uh, wow. unheard of within the company at the time. And there I was 26 or 27 years old, and, and I had never heard of anything like this. Six months to just wow. go and do whatever I want. And I went to the beach and I learned how to surf. <laughs> and you know, after three or four weeks, I got really bored. And uh-huh. that's ultimately what spawned Fuser was really just not being able to sit on my hands and sit idle. And, and I don't know that I would ever do that. I can't imagine retiring. Right for me, uh-huh. I don't work. I believe in this concept, uh, the Japanese concept of ikigai. So if you're familiar with it, stop me. But if I'm not, not, I'm not. I'll, I'll explain. So imagine a, a four-way Venn diagram. In the first circle, you have things that you're good at. In the next, you have things that you enjoy doing. In the next, you have things that you can actually get paid for. And in the final circle, things that the world really needs. And in the center, the overlap of those four rings is your ikigai. And, and ultimately, I think that's where I am today. I've found something that I'm good at, uh, that I really enjoy doing, that the world certainly needs, and hopefully I'll be able to make a lot of money off of. But that money isn't just 
necessarily for me or for our shareholders. We are a benefit corporation. So if you're familiar with the B Corp concept, we mm -hmm. balance profit with purpose. So the reason we exist, and, and this is written into the bylaws of the company, is to have an outsized impact on uh, you know, the health of the planet. So everything that we do not only needs to bring cash in, we are still a for-profit business, but we need to make sure we are respecting planet Earth in the process. All right. I, I want to segue back into Ether. I get the broader mission, but it still feels like this crazy science that I think for most people, it'll be hard for us to fully visualize how it works. So can you paint a picture? How exactly do you take this invisible gas and turn it into a beautiful gem? So yeah, happy to paint a picture. I'll do it in broad strokes because there are certain elements that I'm not quite at liberty to divulge just now. Uh, for sure, for sure. <laughs> With that said, I, I like to explain it as a as a three way or three step process. So the first step is pulling CO2 out of the air, and there are a number of different companies that are really building some great technology to achieve that end. And we said to ourselves in the beginning, all right, we know we need to pull carbon out of the air. And at the other end of this production process, we need to turn that carbon into a diamond. And in both of those areas, there are fairly developed technology stacks that are already out there in the world. So in the interest of being lean, in the interest of making our lives that much easier, what can we do to attach ourselves to those types of technologies and not have to develop them ourselves from scratch? Because everything in between is going to be fairly insurmountable in, its, in and of itself. So... I can't go out and build three independent tech stacks and marry them together. I can make one that leverages these other two. And that's what we set out to do. So essentially, upfront for atmospheric carbon collection, we are working with a company called uh, Climeworks. Climeworks is you know, one of, one of the leading direct air capture companies in the world. They're based in Switzerland, phenomenal engineers. We reached out to them. This was interesting, and, and I guess now that we'll say it in a public forum, it's a little bit of, of that entrepreneurship and maybe gamesmanship that we, we put in play to just get our first meeting with them. We reached out and said, hey, this is what we're doing. We're interested in, in speaking with you guys, and we happen to be in Zurich next week. Would it be possible to get a meeting while we're in town? And as soon as they confirmed, then we booked our trip to Zurich. <laughs> <laughs> maybe someone from Climeworks will hear this and, and get a chuckle, uh, but we needed to get in the room with them. And I certainly wasn't going to book a trip on, take a flyer, not to that degree. Trips to, to Zurich from New York aren't the cheapest. So we, we reached out, said, yeah, we, we're going to be in Zurich. We'd love to meet. And we got a meeting with them. And that was two years ago. You know, we told them a bit about what we were doing and how we wanted to work with them potentially. You know, we were looking at different uh, potential partners and gave, they were forthcoming enough to give us some insight into what our options were if we were to work with them. And we did. We went out and, and spoke to a number of different direct air capture companies. And, and ultimately, for a number of reasons, they were the appropriate partner for us. I don't need to get into the specifics uh -huh. as to why some of it is technical and some of it is you know, more just at a business level. They've gone on to, to raise upwards of $100 million over the last couple of years. So really doing great when it comes to building out this technology. And they use a, a tech called amine filtration. So essentially, they're pumping air through a box. And in that box is a filter. And that filter will be saturated with amines that bond to CO2, but it's a, mm -hmm. a weak chemical bond. So you pump air through it, and after three or four hours, it's fully saturated in CO2. You seal up that box, you pull a vacuum. So there's nothing in the box now except for this physical membrane, if you will, this substrate. You pass hot water over it in the box, and it breaks the bonds and it fills the box up with CO2. There's some other stuff along the way. Nitrogen makes up the, you know, the majority of our atmosphere, so there's a bunch of nitrogen in there. What you get out that you can pump into a bottle is about 70% pure CO2. That's probably as far as I can go without getting into NDA issues. <laughs> <laughs> but now we have bottled CO2, and every atom of CO or every CO2 molecule that's in that bottle came from the atmosphere. And that's on a, as I said, four-hour cycle. Mm -hmm. Run, pump. It's really quite impressive what they've built. So we take it from there. It goes through multiple steps of purification, and we raise the purity up. Then we convert it into our proprietary hydrocarbon precursor. So wow. I'll put a quick pause there, and then I'll go to the other end of the, the process. When you make a diamond in a laboratory, there are two ways to do it. 
there's chemical vapor deposition and high pressure, high temperature, two, two different methods for producing crystalline carbon. Uh, CVD requires high purity hydrocarbons. So predominantly methane, but it could be ethane, could be a, a number of different hydrocarbons. And all of those come from fossil fuels. So if you are making diamonds in a laboratory today, you're relying on fossil fuels. And there are companies out there in the lab-grown jewelry space in particular that pitch this narrative of them being the more environmentally responsible or friendly alternative. And, and that's a bit of a narrative violation to me because they're inherently propping up the oil and gas industry. What could we do to replace that ingredient so that every atom of carbon that makes it into the final diamond is responsibly sourced? And that's really what we've done now. We've bridged the gap between this upfront direct air capture and this final diamond synthesis. And we basically take the CO2, convert it into our ecologically friendly ingredient, which then you know goes through further purification and gets it to the point where it can now be suitable for use in growing diamonds. And that's, uh, that's the gist of it, super high level. All right. My mind is going bonkers. This is so fascinating to me. What the interesting piece here, now I'm flipping my hat from the alchemist to the operator, is how do you communicate the distinction between what people and consumers typically perceive as the eco-friendly alternative to what is actually the status quo? So I can see here that y'all plan to, to launch pretty soon. So there must have been a, a bunch of thinking around how to communicate this value proposition. What do you think, in your opinion, is going to be that Hail Mary? What, what is going to be the, the, the effective way to distill down this distinction or value proposition to the market of consumers today? So great question. And, and ultimately, we're leaning on some lessons that I learned with Fuser. For Fuser, we were building stuff that needed to exist in the world, but we leaned too much on the technical side of things, I think, and some of our storytelling. And that made it great to attract motorcyclists who were maybe like engineers or had a science, an interest in science and, and technology, uh, but maybe alienated some of the riding populace that were not as tech savvy. You can't just lean on the technology. You have to lean on the deliverable. And for us, mm -hmm. it's there's, a, there's an adage in the jewelry industry. The only thing that ever sells jewelry or diamonds specifically is a story. And lab-grown diamonds today don't have a story. They're a commodity product. They're largely made in, in, through dirty manufacturing processes in parts of Asia. And this is the vast majority of lab-grown diamonds that are produced in the world today. And they use you know, this, this dirty fossil carbon. So there's all these you know, negative elements to it. But really for consumers, and, and for a very long time, there was a negative stigma attached to lab-grown because they were man-made. They're not quote-unquote special. And that's a narrative that the diamond producers, the mining companies, the DPA, which is the Diamond Producers Association, which is an industry group funded by the mining companies, they really leaned on that hard. They tried to pitch lab-grown diamonds as not real. At the end of the day, they're exactly the same. The atomic structure, you know, down to the most finite level, Diamonds that come from a laboratory are pure crystalline carbon. Diamonds that come from the ground are pure crystalline carbon. They are the same product. They have the same mechanical properties, the same optical properties, the same chemical mm -hmm. properties. But this is not like you're going and buying a fake Rolex and it looks like a regular Rolex and it passes the test. No, this is something that not a, there's not a gemologist on the planet that can tell the difference between a lab-grown diamond and an earth-mined diamond. So this negative stigma that was attached to it from being man-made, made sense. I, I get that. But we're flipping that paradigm on its head. And for us, we're turning man-made into a positive now because there's no way to make an uh, ecologically friendly diamond through non-man-made procedures. If you're digging a mm -hmm. hole in the ground, scarring the earth, these giant pockmarks that, become, that are diamond mines, some of which can be seen from space, they're so big. There's diamond mines that are a mile wide, these big strip mines. And this is something that we are very sensitive to. And if you look at the industry at large, it's responsible for 12 and a half million metric tons of CO2 being pumped into the air every year, nearly 30,000 metric tons of PM 2.5 air particulate, which a lot of people don't realize when it comes to air cleanliness, it's not just a carbon issue we have, 
but fine air particulate uh, can cause such huge health issues. In the U.S. alone, it causes more premature deaths than automobile accidents and opioid overdoses combined. For us to come out and say, no, man-made is a good thing because look at what it enables us to do. I'd like to say that within the next five years, our one company should be able to offset the carbon footprint of about half of the entire industry. Within 10 years, we will be offsetting the entire industry. And then within another 10 years from there, maybe we will have been able to take out all of that legacy carbon that's been pumped into the atmosphere over the previous 100 years. We have very big aspirational goals, and that's really why diamonds are important, because diamonds are a high-margin good. So when you buy a diamond from us, you're not just getting that diamond, you're getting the impact. And today, that impact is about 20 metric tons per carat. You buy a, just to put it in perspective, the average American doesn't even know what their carbon footprint is, but it's about 16 metric tons of CO2. So if you buy a two-carat engagement ring from us, you've just offset your own carbon footprint for the next two and a half years. Think about that. People don't know where to start in their personal life necessarily. So where they can begin offsetting or, or having a more positive uh, change for their own personal mm-hmm. footprint. And we use this transaction as a vehicle to empower those consumers. So that kind of storytelling really resonates. In fact, we're going to do a little bit more. We'll bundle in. Uh, so if you buy your engagement ring and your wedding ring from us, we'll bundle in the offsets for your entire wedding. So now that event, which is one of the most momentous events of your life, can be held guilt-free. Oh, Ryan, this is so freaking cool. You are hitting and checking every checkbox. I, I, the, the closest analogy that I'm hearing is from a previous guest we had on the show, Air Company. They're turning carbon into vodka. Yep. And I, I think what you said about your approach to storytelling resonates a lot with me because in the same way that people are sitting down at a restaurant and choosing what to drink, there's really little that stops someone from purchasing what they're used to. It's the same way for generations, consumers have been told to buy diamonds that come from the earth, that aren't grown in a lab, right? Because of everything that they just discussed. And it really, in order to change the paradigm, it actually starts with the art of storytelling. That's the only way that you're going to get someone to gravitate to a new narrative, to change the way that they view the world, to change the way that they spend. And it's why I've been so fascinated with with Air Company's approach to launching. Eclipse Foods are impossible. Instead of doing mass market distribution out of the gate, they seeded it in certain restaurants and they actually trained each of the waiters and waitresses. They give them like they run through like a pretty extensive training process to make sure that the way they tell the story represents precisely what they're trying to do. And I, I could see the same opportunity here. The, 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 what you told here and the way that you're thinking about storytelling, about packaging, Right, like my fiance and I were getting married. We were supposed to get married actually last weekend. Got postponed to next September. And as someone who does care about the world, I I run this podcast. (laughs) I would be lying to you if I didn't tell you. I I feel an immense amount of guilt when it comes to some of the specs on our wedding. And if I knew that I had the option of ether that takes all of that thinking and the guilt out of the equation. It becomes a no-brainer, and I think this next generation of buyers is going to gravitate to Ether in en masse. This will become a no-brainer for this kind of new era of buyer that wants to be responsible but just doesn't know how to and doesn't have the willingness or time to go through auditing their decisions every single time they make a purchase. Without a doubt. And congratulations on your upcoming nuptials. Thank it's you. a total bummer that you had to have it rescheduled. I can't tell you how many weddings, you know, even clients of ours. One of the things we've done along the way is bespoke engagement ring and wedding ring creation. Uh, it's a way of uh-huh. just, you know, funding the business. We've, outside of just founder at Capital, we were self-funded all the way up until this year. So in talking to a lot of our customers, 
it's uh, it's been interesting to see how COVID has impacted things. But so it's it's definitely uh, unfortunate. I, I hope you know, hope it wasn't a problem just from a logistics perspective and making sure that your venues and everything was all you know sorted. But, uh, but yeah, I agree with you. I think that as consumers become more aware, the average wedding has a footprint of over sixty metric tons. It's almost four years of the average wow. footprint for your average American. And uh, man, yeah. It's, that's nothing to scoff at. Think about how many people come in. They're coming in from all over. You've got deliveries, trucks. These are things that each and of themselves contribute to you know, the overall carbon footprint. So yeah, over, I think it's 63 metric tons is the average. Yeah. And that's, that, that's not insubstantial. Man, I wish I had ether before, <laughs> before we went through this whole process. I'm not, I'm not kidding. This would have been a no-brainer for Tori and myself. And just to zoom out to the broader commercial opportunity, it's funny because as I've gone through my fair share of consumer businesses now, and it's funny when I reflect back on really the criteria for deciding what to work on or not. Like when you look at categories that I've worked in, so I've worked in, I, I run a games company, so low ticket value, like $20 item, $24.99 retail item, food, super low margin. And it's just, it's almost like uh, I'm a masochist, right? Or I'm an entrepreneur that's disguising myself. Because really, when you look at a category like diamonds, that the market demand is there and will always be there. Now that you've almost reinvented the chain and the means of production, there's a whole new kind of introduction of price economies and an opportunity there on the pricing and cost of goods side. And then like, this is an item that people spend big time on. So you've really nailed it when it comes to choosing where to start. High margin, demand is going to be there. And the beauty of this is these are small products. So <laughs> shipping these things, it's not like you're shipping a Panasonic TV. Yes, the maybe the ticket value on a TV is 300 bucks, but it's going to cost you how much to ship it. So you've really nailed it when it comes to the criteria for deciding. Was that, how much of that thinking now that you've, you've, you're a multi-time operator, was that a big portion of deciding where to exploit this new technology of transferring or repurposing carbon into physical product? To a degree. And, and it has to be. That said, it's when we were really looking at Diamonds were the first foray. They, they will be our, our concentration in the near term, but we're already doing work with other carbon morphologies, graphite, graphene, really interesting stuff. Even the hydrocarbon you know, raw ingredient that we produce, there's a bit of a mass imbalance with the, with the way we produce it. So we have too much of it. And we'll store it and we can turn that into diamonds or we can find other markets that use that type of specialty gas. For instance, mm -hmm. solar panels, right? When you build a solar panel, you need high purity, ultra high purity methane for your thin film coatings. So even though your product is made, you know, with the end goal of providing sustainable energy, you needed to inherently support the fossil fuel industry to get there. And that again, big narrative violation. So for us, if we can come in and say to a, a solar provider, Hey, we have this carbon negative ultra high purity methane. So stop using fossil methane for you know, your feedstock for your thin film coatings. Let's use our product. It just gives us other opportunities to monetize our tech stack. And the fact that diamonds were small was something that's certainly attractive to us. In the beginning, it actually, you know, requires that we move some larger things like storage tanks and stuff. So there's an upfront expenditure, not only from a dollar's perspective, but from a from a CO2 perspective. We have this, mm -hmm. this tonnage of CO2 that we're putting out into the world just to get up and running. And we'll offset all of that. Mm -hmm. the, the, the company is going to operate with a negative carbon footprint. So all business operations are offset, both through the sequestration work that we're directly engaging in, uh, as well mm -hmm. as you know ex external offsets through partners of ours, groups that we're working with, reforestation platforms, regenerative farming platforms, um, and, and groups like that. And that'll be a part of the business into the future. So, you know, diamonds being small and having a, being easy to ship is one thing, but still it doesn't really play into our long-term vision. It's great in the mm -hmm. near term. But eventually what we'll do is hyper-localized carbon collection and manufacturing. So if we're going to sell diamonds into the European market, we're not going to make them here in the U.S. We'll make them in Europe. 
for diamonds that are sold in the U.S., we will make them here. One, it, it, you know, then we don't have to pay to import them into the country, which is great, right? Just helps our bottom line. But at the same time, uh, it enables us to do stuff that you know lends to that storytelling that we mentioned before. So, for instance, how many diamond mines are located underneath New York City? None. Oof. How many are located yeah. underneath Los Angeles? None. Or Paris, or London, or Chicago, or Miami? None. So, in these major metropolitan areas, we could have localized carbon collection, so that when you fall in love with with someone and that you want to spend the rest of your life with them in Miami, buy a Miami diamond. You fell in love in February, buy a Miami diamond that was made from carbon captured there in February. So it all lends to this really interesting merchandising plan that we have. And so that's the long-term vision. It enables us to really play to you know people's kind of pride of where they're from and, and where they live. And, and that uh, is a major part of your own romantic story. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, every diamond that came from the ground, they were formed a very long time ago when the earth was solidifying. There's nothing special that correlates to you or your loved one. And the industry has played up that sense of rarity. And in fact, our diamonds are the rarest diamonds in the world, just by virtue of how few of them we're producing right now. So, you know, if we really wanted to lean into the scarcity element, we certainly have that box checked as well. (laughs) You're inspiring so many tangential uh, trains of thought. For example, the way that you're thinking about packaging a particular skew, good apples to apples comparison are candles. Right? There's a whole opportunity now around repackaging a commodity product like candles. Uh, Buddy started a, a company called Birthday Candles, and it's precisely that. It says, hey, there, there's not much that distinguishes company A from company B in the candle market. So what if instead we took candles but made it special for you? Right. So you choose your birthday, and that particular candle is then packaged and, and physically wrapped in a way that reflects your day, has an astrology sign on it, it's personalized for you. So you're right. I I think you're definitely right in that hunch. The other thing that I wanted to touch on was the manufacturing piece. You talk about going to Zurich and meeting with Climeworks, not to take a jab at them. For the listeners here that are exploring opportunities, how big of an opportunity is there on the infrastructure side of things, like to create Climeworks in the US? Is that... Are they? I'd imagine that they've they've got to have some type of footprint here exploring it. But is is that to me feels like a blue ocean in some capacity? There are certainly companies in North America that are working on it, uh, from what I understand, and, and and really don't quote me on this because this is something that you know is, pertains to the inner workings of Climeworks. But uh-huh. uh, to my understanding, that there is no real presence here in the states uh, right now. They're really looking to you know grow operations. Uh, in Europe, so they have you know base of operations in Switzerland, but they're also they have a footprint in Iceland. There, mm-hmm. there's a geothermal plant in Iceland that they've co-located at, uh, which makes all of the sense in the world. This is mm-hmm. something that you need waste heat for, and you need energy, and you get both of that with a geothermal plant. So it enables them to uh, really operate at the maximum uh, negative carbon footprint. So, you know, for us, we we view this as a an opportunity to potentially import some of their hardware here. That's certainly something that's on the radar. We've discussed it. I can't get too in the weeds on that. As I'm sure you can understand. Sure. We view ourselves you know, more holistically as like an application layer technology that sits on top of DAC because at the end of the day, how do you commercialize carbon sequestration if all you're doing is taking carbon out of the air and pumping it underground? It's a hard mm-hmm. thing to do. Mm-hmm. You, you need subsidies or you need to convince consumers that they should pay to offset their own carbon footprint. That's a tough thing to do unless it's attached to a product. That was one of the realizations we had. When you look at what it costs to purchase one offset in the carbon markets today, depending on who you are, what type of volume you're purchasing, and where the carbon was sourced from, a metric ton of CO2 can be had for as little as a dollar, sometimes as high as $15. And that's the mm-hmm. range we see more often than not. But if you look at DAC, and this is not specific to one company, but across the board, it goes up to hundreds of dollars. And that's simply too expensive to be competitive in today's market. But mm-hmm. if you bolt that on to our process, we can turn that one ton of CO2 into millions of dollars worth of saleable goods, orders of magnitude, greater revenue potential at a pretty solid margin. So this is something that enables DAC to, to be commercialized in a way that makes sense where you're going to have demand and in, in, a, in, a, in establishing a business model that makes sense today. 
because mm-hmm. we don't have a lot of time. You know, simply put, direct air capture in and of itself without this application layer or, or multiple application layer implementations and ways of taking that and, and leveraging it to produce desirable products in the world, I don't know how it scales. So that's where we think we slot in. We think we can actually play a role in helping mature these direct air capture technologies with Climeworks and hopefully other companies as well. One of the things we want to do is we want to be able to take a piece of our profits and fund it back into Climeworks, whether that's on the R&D side, you know, trying to achieve greater economies of scale, or simply paying to have them do what they do. Right now, one of the things that they're concentrating on is taking CO2 out of the ground, out of the air and pumping it underground. If you pump CO2 underground into certain rock formations, you can actually have it sequestered down there permanently. So this is something that's great and effective at removing carbon from the air, but it does need some cash flow to, in order for it to, to make sense for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just going to say, Climeworks needs Ether and companies like Ether in order to exist and sustain over the long term. I, I want to touch on one more point before we segue to my signature kind of uh, last question or interview, and it's this notion of offsetting, because I've become recently fascinated in different products that are trying to, uh, A, introduce this behavior to an average consumer, but also do it in a way that's integrated into either the purchasing workflow or post-purchase. And there's a lot of companies doing this. There's Project Ren, there's Pachama, there's Nori. All these different companies that integrate at different layers of the payment stack, post-purchase, pre-purchase, at purchase. And I think, and I'd love to hear if you've thought about it or crossed a bridge here, is it feels like a lot of these things and a lot of the ways that offsetting works is based on approximations, right? So if I'm a customer and I'm buying, let's say, Tom's shoes, Right. If, if you then are a product that then analyzes the bank statement Tom's, that Tom's is a shoe company, Tom's is, is generally more transparent than a lot of other companies. So you have a, a, a greater sense of what their, their actual footprint is and what the, cat, the, the average footprint of the category is. So you can assess, all right, this is probably a good number associated with your carbon cost and this is how much it costs to offset it. But the second you go to what's, I believe, a much more common purchase at, at big box like Amazon, Walmart, Trader Joe's, and that appears on your statement, you have no idea of knowing what products the customer actually purchased. If, you, if Amazon appears on your bake statement, how do you know if it's a Panasonic TV or four reusable bottles? And how do you approximate the carbon cost of that purchase? So to me, I feel like and maybe the solve is just going to be approximations, and that's sufficient. But in my opinion, if you're going to get to a point where consumers want to actively participate, I believe that precision and accuracy are going to be fundamental. And at this point, I don't know what the solve is. Maybe Visa and MasterCard. I don't, I don't know. I, I just don't know. But to me, there's a very significant disconnect in the data integrity and how these companies are assigning costs to purchases. Absolutely. No, I think you're, you're hitting on a lot of things that make me excited for the future because and I'll, and I'll, you'll hear it right now. I don't know that they've announced this, if this, but I would almost guarantee that the direction that Amazon will go is they'll either assess internally or have the sellers on their platform provide a carbon footprint for their products. And I bet there'd be some verification. If you just go and go on Amazon today and type in paper towels and uh-huh. you'll see a ton of like bamboo paper towels that are reusable. Uh, Amazon and Jeff Bezos in particular are both doing a lot right now to drive towards this more sustainable future that we need. He's already mm-hmm. committed a significant amount of capital to the climate fight, if you will. And I would bet that we see that but to your point, there are credit cards that are coming out that will, will help you offset all of your purchases. There are a number of different solutions. I've seen browser extensions that will tell you the carbon footprint of a product when you're looking at the product page. Is it a problem that approximations are something that we might be leaning on a little bit now and, and in the near term? Probably not because perfect is the enemy of done. I'd rather get good enough and eventually get better and better at that. That's what happens in 
all different types of technology. You know, and carbon accounting is still something that you don't have your generally accepted accounting practices for carbon accounting, right? It's not like I, my CPA can say, oh, we're adhering to GAAP. Great. That's awesome for our financial records. But when it comes to our environmental impact, I think there's still a best practices are still being settled on and being ironed out. And uh, I think we'll see a lot of forward progress in that respect over the course of the next few years. Mm. Yeah, I love that perspective. Better is better than best or perfect, at least for the sake of moving the ball forward. But I think to your point about Amazon, it might have been today or yesterday that they just announced a new way, a new filter for purchases. So they, I think they onboarded or helped. I, I really don't want to butcher this, but many tens of thousands of active merchants and reclassified them as planet conscious or something to that effect. But a new filter that Amazon just rolled out that gives consumers the ability to make empowered decisions. Yeah, I hadn't heard um, that. So that excites me <laughs> to hear that. I think it certainly reinforces the sentiment I shared just a few minutes ago. Amazon, in, in many respects, I'm torn when it comes to Amazon in, in particular. Like when I see like an Amazon Basics product, I, do I want to buy that and put more money in Uncle Jeff's pocket? Or do I want to go in and try and find a brand that I want to support that's you know not Amazon owned? But as he and as the company have doubled down on their messaging around climate and the role that they are hoping to play, it certainly changed my sentiment as to how they look, how I look at them. And I, I think I think that's great. And I hope that they can continue to be a leader because it's going to take the world's biggest companies to help drive real effective change. Mm-hmm. And Ryan, you have been such a, a pleasant surprise for this Monday morning, but I don't want to leave you off without asking my signature question. And it's around this notion of the idea graveyard. And I, I know after now meeting you for the first time and talking to you, you're, you're probably like many of our other guests um, in having maybe a note on your phone with a long list of ideas that maybe someday you'd love to get to, but for the time being are just rotting away in your idea graveyard. So my question for you is, what are one of these ideas that you would love to work on if you had the time to do but for the time being, are just rotting away in your idea graveyard. Wow, really great question. I, I, I do like that, and it's a tough one to say. I do have I do have a note on my iPhone that you know, <laughs> syncs to my computer, and I can dump ideas into it. And some of them are great. Some of them maybe not so much. A lot of them are derivative, right? So when I was at Fuser, I, I came up with a number of different like accessory product concepts and things that would just be easy to produce. Um, uh-huh. My wife and I were talking. This was years back about before she was my wife, you know, how she would be able to envision what different colors would look on her nails. And this is before that, this is when AR was still pretty early in its implementation. And and one of the things I had said back then was like, oh, we could make an app and just have AR visualization. So definitely uh, a lot on that front. I don't know that there's one that really jumps out at me. I'm trying to stay focused on on what we're doing. I can say within the confines of Ether as a project, we, we had a conversation uh, with an individual about doing a diamond encrusted face mask. We are cleaning the air. That's the point of a face mask. What if we did a, a insanely expensive diamond encrusted face mask for a, for a very particular customer? And that was something that really interested me. Sometimes my my co-founders and, and our management team you know, have to tell me to pump the brakes because I get excited <laughs> about things. And then I said, this is something that would get people's attention. Depending on the size of the stones, this could be a million dollar product. And that'd be cool just to get out into the world and you know, hope the uh, the hype beasts of, of the world pick it up and, and, and run with that story. And ultimately, we decided to be a little bit more focused. And uh, we're not going to be pursuing that's... that, at least anytime soon. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. And I, I actually, to your, to your initial point about the nails, I'm familiar with products that do this for shoes, uh, another for furniture. Nails feels like I, – I can ask – I'll ask my fiance. I haven't seen anything that lets a consumer do that. And it feels super easy. I believe there are a couple solutions that might be out there yeah. now. There was a time where you know, my wife and a couple of her friends were playing around with some different like vinyl printing solutions to try and uh-huh. basically build an app where you could pull in images, patterns and stuff, and then just send it to this 
app and uh, and you could have like custom wraps made so that they would get mailed to you. You'd be able to apply this little vinyl cover to your nails and, and it looked just like nail polish and you could even hit it with a, a layer of clear coat on top. So that's why we were discussing <laughs> that whole concept. This is many years uh-huh. back. I'm, I'm nearly certain that there, there, and there must be various uh-huh. you know, kind of AR tools for this stuff now. There must be. Ryan, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you today. I, I would love to roll the red carpet. Are there any final call to actions, hiring needs, anything that you want to leave with our listeners? The floor is yours. Sure. I think one of one of my jobs or one of the part core elements of my job, not only to worry about revenue and fundraising, is, is really establishing culture and growing the team. We've actually doubled the size of our team this year, just at least with internal core members. And we probably doubled it again with external consultants and freelancers. So it's growing pretty quickly and I think it will continue to. And if you as a listener are interested in operating at the intersection of fashion and technology and sustainability, reach out to us. We're always looking for, for talented folks who really want to work with a real mission behind you know, everything that they do. Uh, so that would be one call to action. And depending on when this airs, we're gearing up for our launch. If you are interested in understanding what the future of fine jewelry looks like for design for people and planet, head on over to etherdiamonds.com. Brian. You are the man. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, hopefully when when the world gets back to normal, we can find a time to to put faces to names. (laughs) Absolutely. Take care, man. All right. You take care. Bye-bye. Hey there. You made it to the outro. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you're new here, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much. We're actively casting for new guests on our show. So if you have a rock star founder or company in mind that's working on something cool, message me on Instagram at Peter A. Levin or email us, hello at ingothands.us. Thank you so much again and look forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday. <laughs>